patients at risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined by my co-host and the co-author of our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Narana Lajba. Good evening. Nearly half the states in the union have legislated the unsupervised practice of medicine by nurse practitioners, and currently one state allows physician assistants to practice without physician supervision. This legislative season, we are seeing bills to allow the independent practice of nurse practitioners and physician assistants in multiple states that do not currently allow the practice. Today, we are joined by two Texas physicians who are working to educate patients and legislators about the importance of physician-led care. Kathy McLaughlin, MD, is a urologist practicing in Texas, and Subba Rizvi is a Texas emergency physician who authored a paper on the private equity takeover of emergency medicine groups and their push for more nurse practitioner staffing models. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having me. Kathy, can you start us out by telling us a little bit about the bill that was recently introduced in Texas to allow independent practice by nurse practitioners? Of course. It was a very busy week in Texas. Uh, House Bill 2029 was heard publicly by the Public Health Committee this past Wednesday, March 24th. Every session, this bill is introduced by Representative Stephanie Click, and this session's version would remove the delegation agreement and the prescriptive authority required for nurse practitioners, CRNAs, midwives, and clinical nurses. So essentially, it makes them completely independent and unsupervised. Wow. And Stephanie Click is actually a nurse herself, I believe. That is correct. She is a nurse. And so it sounds like they were just simply going to remove all the restrictions. I took a quick look at the bill and it looked like it was just the the current law, but anywhere it was nurse practitioner, it was crossed out. And then physician assistant was left as far as any kind of supervision or any kind of restrictions at all, basically putting them on par with physicians, it looked like. Am I right about that? You're exactly right. You know, it's, it's again, kind of blurring the line between the practice of nursing and the practice of medicine. And, and this bill would basically make there, there would be no difference. There would be no difference. And of course, we know there is a big difference. Nurse practitioners receive about 500 clinical hours of experience and physicians about 15,000 hours. So yeah, or even more. Oh, definitely even more. I'm sure as a urologist, you want, you did quite a bit more even than that. So tell us what you and your colleagues in Texas there did to fight this bill or what you are doing, because I understand it's still being discussed. Yes. And Texas physicians are very well organized and have been working hard on this and they've done so every session so far. Many of us have partnered with our individual specialty societies to work together to halt this uh, scope expansion, as we call it. Many of us are also working with our county medical societies because we're all in different counties. And then, of course, we're all kind of held together by TMA, the Texas Medical Association, which we are working in conjunction with as well. And independently, a big group of Texas physicians, including myself, we, we all banded together and pulled our resources together to actually hire a PR firm and also to hire a lobbyist to, to really help us just spread the message of the importance of physician-led care. What did your PR team do? So far, our PR team is working very hard trying to get us some earned media opportunities. So last week, a different bill for optometrists to practice 
surgery, as well as this bill was heard in public health committee hearings. And so our PR team is kind of using our testimonies and and converting them into letters to the editor and other things that can be quickly published in, in local media to really put pressure on those legislators to show them, you know, that this is what your constituents and your our patients are reading. This is important. So that's what's our what our PR team has been focusing on. Can I ask you how you found the lobbyist? I mean, not the details. I don't want to give anything away or anything, but I guess I'm just wondering how you all agreed on hiring and finding one person, because we often say, you know, getting physicians to kind of swim in the same direction is really difficult. Well, we didn't have a lot of time because the session was already well underway. So we didn't interview a whole bunch of people. It was really just a, a you know word of mouth. There are not a ton of lobbyists, I think, that fo- focus and are specialized in this healthcare kind of topic. And so there was a specific lobbyist that was recommended to us for specifically healthcare issues. And this lobbyist has also worked with other physician specialty groups. So he seemed like a a great fit. I saw that one of the things that you guys did was you put up or someone in your organization put up a billboard in Austin. And uh, we were very privileged, Naran and I, that the billboard authors asked if they could use patients at risk as the website for people to link to, to get more information. So we want to thank you for putting up that billboard. Tell a little bit about what that says. Well, it just tells us that there are a lot of motivated Texas physicians that we want to get the message out and we want, we want patients to know that they have a choice and that they should always feel that they can ask when they don't know the credentials of the person providing their care. And that's kind of one of the main parts of testimony that was provided by Jeremy Wartenberger. And that is the father of a seven-year-old girl named Betty who passed away when a nurse practitioner at an urgent care failed to properly diagnose her pneumonia and sepsis. And were you there when Mr. Wartenberger was giving his testimony? I was, I was. Jeremy's testimony was just incredible. It was heartfelt and moving. And I think that his testimony really highlighted a very major concern, and that is accountability. There's been discussion previously about how it's very, very difficult for patients who are harmed by nurse practitioners to really find justice because they are not held to the same standard as physicians. They're held to a nursing standard. And in Betty's case, Specifically, we've also been concerned that the Board of Nursing, which oversees the nurse practitioners, they don't provide stringent enough oversight. And I think it's very interesting because in in Jeremy's testimony, he highlighted that the nurse only essentially got a slap on the wrist because she failed to chart the vitals in a timely fashion. Charting vitals is a nursing task. So they were not really able to hold her accountable for being medically negligent or coming to the wrong diagnosis or not recognizing sepsis because those are physician tests. So the Board of Nursing was not able to really provide the adequate oversight in that case. And that's a problem. And that was one of Jeremy's main points that he was making is that there's no justice for patients and there's no recourse when a nurse practitioner 
doesn't properly take care of patients and what is being done to stop this. So this law would just allow more of that. And so there's a legislator, Jared Patterson, who introduced something called Betty's Law that at a minimum would require that healthcare workers would actually have to wear an identification badge, which they're supposed to do anyways. And they're supposed to say who they are and what their training is. But this would, I guess, uh, add some penalties for noncompliance. Absolutely. So we're also trying to educate legislators about this bill because, of course, we support it because, yes, it's part of transparency. So one of the things that I see happening and we all are seeing happening is the replacement of physicians. And of course, in states that allow independent practice, it's just a lot easier for corporations to replace physicians. And this is something that, Subba, you have been writing about. You're an emergency physician, and you're really concerned about the takeover of private equity among in emergency rooms. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, private equity firms have actually bought a significant number of emergency medicine practices over the last decade or so and have slowly started to implement unsafe staffing models and staffing ratios where they will have a number of nurse practitioners with a dwindling number of physicians who are going to oversee those nurse practitioners, take care of patients. The idea in emergency medicine is that every physician should staff ideally with every nurse practitioner. So every patient has access to a board-certified emergency physician, but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore with these private equity companies. We are also seeing that not only are they implementing these unsafe staffing models, but now that there are certain emergency departments in more rural areas that are having, uh, in states which have passed full practice authority, are now having just nurse practitioners practice there with a possibly a physician that is an emergency medicine doctor in a remote sense to to oversee that patient's care or that uh, nurse practitioner. You know, that's the trend I think that we're seeing across the country. You know, it starts with this idea that one physician staffing one nurse practitioner. And then when nobody dies, I think what happens is they say, well, maybe now you as the board certified physician can staff a PA and a nurse practitioner. And then let's say nobody dies, we get lucky again. And then pretty soon you're supervising three and four non-physicians. And I guess, are you seeing that kind of trend where you are or are you, are you, are they really holding to the one-to-one? Well, yeah. And as I mentioned in the Houston Courant article that was uh, recently published, this is not only happening in rural areas, but unfortunately, this was creeping into our university centers and into our teaching hospitals as well. A well-known center for teaching here in the Austin area as the University of Texas in Austin, which runs a residency program and also medical students rotate through that emergency department. Now, the first, I guess, reportings of this that were this story that broke, which was coming out, is that U.S. Acute Care Solutions, which is the company that was lined with a private equity company that was tasked to oversee the contract of the emergency department at the university hospital, had started to release nine or so physicians and realign them in places or get rid of them altogether and then replace them with PAs and NPs. And this is a real concern because not only are we jeopardizing patient care when this happens, but also these ivory towers, if you will, these these institutions of greater higher learning for our, our medical students and our residents are going to certainly see a compromise in their education because they don't have good oversight and a good, if you will, a teacher to student ratio when it comes to having enough attendings that are teaching them the appropriate skills to be practicing emergency medicine. Instead, they have nurse practitioners who who cannot teach residents or cannot teach medical students. 
Yeah, they really shouldn't be. Really, medical students should be taught by physicians because that's how we pass on our learning. I liked one of the things that you said in that Houston Cron article, which was nurse practitioners are not equipped, nor trained, nor educated, nor do they have the capacity or the background to do lots of things that emergency physicians do. And you specifically pointed out things like airway management and intubations. But, you know, in our book, Patients at Risk, we highlight the case of Alexis Ochoa, a 19-year-old young woman who died when a nurse practitioner missed her pulmonary embolism. And this was exactly the case of what you're describing is no physicians being on staff or them being at a remote location where you have to depend on a nurse practitioner or potentially a PA to call and staff cases at their discretion. And unfortunately, what happens is that patients can die. There's a reason that you guys do your training as emergency physicians. You're not replaceable. Yes, absolutely. You're 100% right, Rebecca. And not only that, I mean, the case here in Texas with Betty Wattenberger was the same, where there was a physician that was only available by remote phone call and did not actually seeing the patient. And had he seen the patient, had he or she seen the patient, they would have been able to immediately recognize that she was quite ill and septic and needed higher level of care. Unfortunately, I maintain this a lot in, in, in some of my writings and my advocacy work that emergency medicine, like a lot of medicine, is highly nuanced. We're not algorithmic like nursing is. And unfortunately, you can't check boxes and say, well, check this, check that, check this. The patient must have the diet. It's not you put an algorithm into a computer and it spits out a diagnosis. No, it's a lot more detailed and a lot more nuanced than that. For example, if you see somebody with who may be in an urgent care setting or in a fast track setting in emergency room and has a rash. Well, you know, they may be triaged as a level four, which is a lower acuity level because of their rash. And it may end up being TTP, which is a serious illness. And so that's the level of understanding that physicians have with their advanced training that unfortunately nurse practitioners and PAs do not have. And yeah, absolutely. They are not equipped to take care of a lot of emergencies. And I would argue that emergency medicine is one of those fields that we unfortunately have patients who are undifferentiated. There is no fine tag to their diagnosis. And we are the diagnosticians who are going to be working them up to figure out what's going on with them. So it's uh, ever more important that the highest level of training be available for those patients who are presenting with their emergency. So absolutely, they're not equipped to do a lot of advanced airway management. They're not equipped to do a lot of the uh, diagnostic studies that we do, like lumbar punctures and spinal taps, arthrocentesis and other things, uh, displacement of shoulders and and, um, knees and hips. So yes, unfortunately, that is the case. I'd love to hear about what the mood was like in the room, uh, just to return to Jeremy Wartenberger for a minute, because um, I think he's such a powerful orator or speaker, however you want to say it. I just think he's he carries such an important message as a parent and as a parent who lost a child unnecessarily. So I'm just kind of curious if, if you were both there, I'd love to hear both answers. But what what was his impact in the room? I think the the order of the testimonies really could not have been more perfect. We were there all day and most of the testimonies were done and Jeremy's was the second to last testimony. And his testimony was immediately after another physician colleague of mine who testified exactly about that problem of of not being able to hold the nurses accountable. So then Jeremy testified next and literally drove that point home 
you know, in the most emotional and clear way possible. So it was silent in the room afterwards, you know, the committee members you know, didn't really have any questions to ask because it was just, like I said, it, it was just, everybody was kind of emotionally just stunned. There was one person who testified after Jeremy, I feel bad for that person. It was a, an AARP representative testifying for this bill. And he, I don't think anybody paid attention because it was just, you know, we were still kind of recovering from all that raw emotion that Jeremy just laid out. So, <laughs> well, I find that interesting because of course, as we know, the AARP has been such a, a proponent of this. Yeah. And, you know, of course, I take care of young people. And I've often said that, you know, I get them at the beginning of their life and get to set them up for the next 80 years. That's that's sort of what I'm doing when I make decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's a good thing I don't take care of people that are, let's say, over 80, because I'd say, well, you know, your time is coming to an end and we don't need to worry about these big, important decisions. And I, and I don't mean that in reality, other than I feel like that's what the AARP is saying, right? Uh, you know, I say it a little bit in jest. I don't work with elderly, but I feel like the AARP is saying lower quality care is okay. I mean, we're over 50. I mean, how much more time do we have? So if we if we die early from the nurse practitioner, the PA, like, I guess that's okay. Whereas for me, what makes Jeremy's testimony so powerful is Betty had a life ahead of her. Alexis Ochoa had an entire life ahead of her. You know, those two human beings are younger than all of us on this podcast tonight. And to me, and maybe it's just the pediatrician and me, we lost 80 years in one kid and potentially 90 years in another kid and at the hands of someone who simply didn't have the training. So I'm really glad to hear that Jeremy's testimony was so impactful because I feel like against the AARP, I think it's this dichotomy that's really important. Right. And he also made an important point, you know, because in Texas, yeah, we still have supervision. We're still supposed to be collaborating, but we're making a big assumption that these nurse practitioners will collaborate. She worked in an urgent care that had x-ray, that had lab. She could have picked up a phone to call a physician. No labs were done. No x-rays were taken. No phone call was made to a physician. So we're making a big assumption that they know when to reach out. They know when to consult or collaborate with us, but they don't. And that's what, what is so problematic about remote supervision is you have these nurse practitioners under you. And in Texas, you can have seven in a rural setting in Texas. You can have unlimited numbers of mid-levels underneath your license. You're assuming that they're going to call you for something that's critical, but but they oftentimes don't. You know, they may not even recognize. I'm sorry to interject. No, I think I was going to say the same thing that, you know what? Vital signs are vital. And it sounds like something didn't get recognized. So I will defer to you as the ER doc to kind of take us further because that's where I was heading. No, absolutely. I agree with Kathy 100%. I mean, you know, the assumption is that they're going to call, but you, in order for you to even make that call, you have to recognize that what you're seeing as something is dangerous. And and what they don't know, and we've said this multiple times over and over, don't know what you don't know. And that's unfortunately the case with a lot of these nurse practitioners who are working in these remote sites or have a remote medical control, if you will. But uh, just to go back and touch on this other point that I think we really need to hone in on is the profit motive behind all of this. You all mentioned the AARP. I don't know if our listeners are aware that the AARP health plans are insured by United Healthcare, which is an insurance company. And the uh, United Healthcare insurance company pays royalty fees to the AARP. That's very important to realize that, that a lot of this is being pushed 
not only by the nurse practitioner lobby, but it's also being pushed by very insidious forces, such as private equity firms that are sitting and reaping profits off of physician practices and, and, and physician clinics on Wall Street. Um, we're talking about KKR and Blackstone Group being the two biggest ones within my field of emergency medicine, but there are others and insurers. And so I think the public really needs to realize that this is being pushed by a corporate agenda and by corporations like the insurance corporations and the private equity. You're exactly right. And you wrote about that in Emergency Medicine News. You wrote an article. Tell us a little bit about, you mentioned that Texas has a corporate practice of medicine law, but it's not really well enforced. Tell us what that even means, the corporate practice of medicine. Sure. The corporate practice of medicine laws uh, were implemented and you get, all can go on to the Texas Medical Association site, and they have a very well-written white paper that was written in 2019, actually, in regards to the corporate practice of medicine. Uh, Basically, these are laws that outlaw the direct employment and or supervision of corporations over the practice of medicine, meaning corporations can't dictate how many nurse practitioners an ER should have versus how many physicians it should have. But that's exactly what's happening when you introduce a private equity company into a physician group. The way they circumvent the CPOM laws is a little bit more complicated and, you know, (laughs) is best for the attorneys to explain, but there are ways. It does require the allegiance or some physicians partaking in the scheme to buffer themselves between the corporation and the actual practicing physician group. So these physicians then take a portion of equity from the company and say that they will manage the group and they are the, what we call in our field, the paper holders or the the sham organizations, if you will, that are actually not listed as the corporation, but are the middlemen, you know, between the corporation and the physicians who are working. So that's how they circumvent these laws. It, It is unfortunately legal to do that. However, if state lawmakers and state legislature and the attorney general's office actually looks into this, these schemes they would and tries to enforce these laws, then we would probably be better off and the public would be better off. I would think so. I mean, you mentioned when the article you were quoted in the Houston Courant article, the case of Del Seton, which had dismissed or transferred nine physicians, replacing them with non-physician practitioners. I remember just a few years ago in Dallas area, there was that group called MD Medical. They fired 27 pediatricians and replaced them with nurse practitioners. And of course, we're seeing this all across the country and patients really have to be wary. And how are patients even to know whether or not their doctor is actually owned really by a private equity corporation? They don't know. Yes. And we need transparency on that front too. When practices sell to private equity firms or align themselves with private equity firms or other corporations, we need to be able to somehow dispense that knowledge to patients. Unfortunately, these are deals that have very strong non-disclosure agreements attached to them, so they don't have to disclose anything about the deals. But I think that we need to make some headway in that, in that, in that area. You know, you bring up a good point. It's interesting. I've noticed over the last year or so, obviously, I'm in an area in Washington where there's been a a monopolization as well and takeover of healthcare. And I've actually had a number of patients say, you know, are you owned by them yet? And, you know, it's CHI or Dignity or Common Spirit. It, It changes, honestly, every other month or so. They've even renamed the hospital all of a sudden. 
And so, uh, so patients are actually beginning to ask. And to me, I, that's something I think is exciting because I, I wish we had transparency laws. It's amazing to me, like they have this non-medical ownership, right? This corporate practice law precludes it, but there are workarounds. I love the, the Betty's law, for example, saying you've got to identify yourself clearly, you know, when you're working in a facility, what is your license? What is your credentials? And I love that. And I wish we could wear the badges like I own myself or I'm owned by, you know, Blackstone. Yeah. Uh, physician-owned practice or physician right. ownership only, you know? Right. Yes. And I just don't think Blackstone, like I'm fine doing it, but Blackstone isn't going to show up and do it. The AARP doesn't want the country to know they're getting paid every time one of these venture capital firms or United Healthcare or somebody else profits off of them. And so the problem with that kind of attitude is they don't want transparency and they're going to hide. And so I think the only way again is to hand it to the patients. And so I wasn't sure if there is a way to get, the, if you feel like there's a way to get the message out from an ER from an urgent care, from a, from a practice so that patients can find out. Yeah, there's a lot of movement on this front and hopefully more people will kind of start looking at their state laws and state provisions and see what's there and what they can work with and actually reaching out to their state AGs, you know, go call your attorney general's office and talk to them about what laws are on the books and what we can do about this. And our practices are not car dealerships. Our patients are not inventory. And, and that's something that's important to remember. You know, when we sell our practices to these corporations, because there is an element of choice in this, right? Physicians are selling themselves. You want to make the argument that senior partnership, older guys that went out big payments to sell their practice are really selling a piece of medicine with it. And we have as a, as a community of physicians to recognize what we're doing to our own profession. You are so right. And I, I think this is why Naran and I talk about this a lot. And we're very fortunate now to own ourselves. And that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons that we could write the book and that we could speak out because if we were owned by a company, there's no way that we would be able to do that. We would possibly lose our jobs. Kathy, yeah. are you, do you own yourself? No, I actually work for the federal government. And so, but what about you? Are you, you have to be employed, I guess, because you're an ER doctor. Yes, unfortunately, emergency medicine physicians do not have that. And that brings in the uh, whole idea of autonomy and due process that I also mentioned in my paper is that when you, we are owned by corporations, we certainly let go of a lot of our autonomy and due process rights. So you have provisions under a employment contract to, to, to have a fair hearing, and then a private equity firm may not give you that. So I'm actually a first year in law school. So <laughs> I'm hopefully going to get my JD and help fight all of this. So we'll that see. is so inspiring because, you know, I think a lot about how uh, as a family doctor and ran as a pediatrician, you know, we're office based, we have a little more autonomy than our colleagues who are hospital dependent for their livelihood. And now we know that you're, we're not allowed to open hospitals as physicians anymore. That was stopped with the Affordable Care Act. So mm -hmm. physicians often have no choice but to tow the, the company line or they can't be employed. And so I'm glad to hear that. And hopefully you'll be able to be instrumental in turning that around and helping us to regain our autonomy. Absolutely. I can't wait. So was there anything in particular that inspired you two to get so passionate about scope of practice? I find it interesting that here we are four women all speaking out. And sometimes I, I see women being some of the most vocal supporters of physician-led care. Is there anything that happened that you wanted to share? Well, for me, it was actually just starting to see cases where patients were not, not treated correctly. And then 
that kind of led to a little light bulb, like, oh, well, those two patients had, you know, something that I, I can't believe, you know, any physician would actually miss this. And then it was kind of going back to, you know, where the, where did the referral come from or where, where should it have come from? Who was the, who was the primary care manager? And it turned out that they were nurse practitioners. And then honestly, a friend added me to PPP and that's kind of where where everything blossomed and and came came full circle. So here I am. Yeah, I would say the same, you know, practicing for the last uh, 12 years, I have been practicing emergency medicine. I've seen a number of cases come through that have been obviously misdiagnosed in the community by nurse practitioners and egregious, egregious stuff that no physician should, should or would miss. Uh, one example real quick was a gentleman that had been to an urgent care clinic, he was a little bit elderly and kept on saying his arm hurt and went to that urgent care clinic twice and got two x-rays and each time was like, well, there's no broken bones and, you know, sent out. Finally, he came to me and I said, let me look at your arm. And he had red streaks going up his arm and he had cellulitis and very bad cellulitis. So, you know, that's something that immediately as a skin condition, we would recognize and know that we should put that patient on IV antibiotics because he was elderly and he had some comorbidities and a diabetic and put it together in our brains. And it just happens like rapid fire. When you think about the cost of healthcare, think about how much more that's going to cost that patient and, and everybody because he's insured or has Medicare, two x-rays and two urgent care visits for a diagnosis that could have been made one ER visit or one actual clinic visit with a, with a physician. I want to thank both of you, Drs. Kathleen McLaughlin and Subba Rizvi, for your advocacy, for looking out for patients, for speaking out. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you'd like to learn more about physician-led care, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon.com and at Barnes & Noble. We would love for you to subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel. It's called Patients at Risk. And if you're a physician, you heard about PPP already, we would really encourage you to join our group. You can find us at our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Thank you. Thank you.